Welcome to the Two Cities Podcast, a podcast about theology, culture, and discipleship. And this is episode 136. In this episode, we're talking about teaching Jesus with film with the Reverend Canon Dr. Robert Derenbacher. Dr. Robert Derenbacher is the Frank Woods Associate Professor in New Testament and Dean of the Trinity College Theological School at Trinity College, Melbourne. Team members on the episode from the two cities include Dr. Chris Porter and myself, Dr. John Anthony Dunn. So Chris, this was a fantastic conversation with Dr. Darren Bacher to close out our series on Jesus films. It was lovely to um, chat a bit about, about Jesus films and, and to talk about Jesus in film and really with kind of an eye towards pedagogy and teaching uh, throughout. What were some of the takeaways that you had from our conversation with Dr. Darren Bacher? Yeah, I really enjoyed this conversation uh, in part because as a, a film nerd, I'm not actually that much of a Jesus film nerd. Uh, but one of the things with film is that it, it picks up on tropes from so many other parts of, of life, including the religious tropes. And so um, my preferred option for teaching is actually teaching through other films, not actually the, the Jesus films themselves. And so I really appreciate this conversation. Bob has a, such a, a, a history, a great history and background in teaching Jesus through film. And so we had just a great, broad, wide-ranging conversation from everything from Star Wars through The Godfather um, and thinking about how to use that in the classroom. As always, you can find us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook, or you can visit us at our website at thetwocities.com. And if you'd like to leave us a, a rating and review, that would be fantastic. And here's our conversation with the Reverend Canon Dr. Robert Derenbacher. Well, Dr. Darren Barker, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks. It's great to be here, John, uh, with you and Chris. Thank you. So we're really excited to kind of cap off this wonderful series on Jesus films um, that we've been doing for the past couple of weeks. And one of the things that we'd like to chat with you about is how you uh, kind of utilize Jesus films in your teaching. Since you're a New Testament scholar, focused on the Gospels primarily, um, what are some ways that you find Jesus films useful pedagogically? Thanks, uh, John. Uh, maybe I'll just back up a little bit and talk about uh, how I use film a little more generally, and then talk about uh, Jesus films in the class that I've taught in the past. So I, I think uh, films themselves help illustrate concepts that are foreign to most 21st century learners uh, within New Testament studies. So for example, one of the, well, my favorite movie of all time is The Godfather. It, it is it is indisputably the greatest movie ever made. Um, and I show the opening scene of The Godfather where uh, the undertaker Bonacera is talking with Don Corleone in Don Corleone's office uh, as a way to illustrate the ancient Mediterranean values of honor and shame, and plus it helps illustrate uh, patron-client relationships in antiquity. Even though the film is set in post-World War II uh, America, uh, it, it does reflect those values, and I find the film very helpful uh, in that area. Another example would be when I've taught Galatians in the past, um, and we're thinking about Paul's metaphor of Pythagogos to describe the Mosaic Law, the Torah, I show the opening number from uh, Fiddler on the Roof called Tradition, 
uh, and and it's it's a funny little number, but I think it illustrates uh, a bit of what Paul's getting at in describing Torah as a paedagogos, as a guardian of sorts, and and we see that I think in that in that opening uh, number where Teve sings this great song, Tradition. Um, and that, that film, by the way, is directed by Norman Jewison, who also directed Jesus Christ Superstar, one of my favorite films uh, in the Jesus and film genre. And, and so that kind of leads me to talk a little bit about uh, a class I haven't taught here in Australia yet, but I've taught uh, at least a dozen or so times uh, back in Canada, and that's a class on Jesus and film. And of course, Jesus is arguably the most filmed character in the history of cinema, more than Robin Hood, more than James Bond, even more than Austin Powers. Uh, and and uh, so I've taught this course uh, for, for a number of years, and uh, it's just really interesting to see how filmmakers have interpreted the stories of Jesus that they see in the gospels or how they interpret another narrative. Uh, it might be Nikos Kazantzakis' The Last Temptation of Christ and to see how Martin Scorsese has interpreted uh, that. And, and so you have, you know, that genre of Jesus films, and within them you have subgenres. You have those Jesus films that are trying to retell the story of Jesus within a first century Palestinian context. So they might harmonize the canonical gospels in some fashion in their screenplays. Those I think are the films that fail uh, the most. I think the films that succeed a little bit better are the ones that rely on one gospel narrative as opposed to trying to harmonize them. Uh, so uh, Pasolini's Gospel According to St. Matthew 1964 is a great film. I think less so is uh, Philip Seville's Gospel of John, which came out in 2003. It kind of approaches the Gospel of John as a screenplay, and it's just long and boring and and it reminds us that John's gospel was not intended to be turned into a screenplay. And, but the films that I, I, I like the most are kind of the transitional ones that I would call them transitional. They're ones that um, are retelling the story of Jesus in a non-first century Palestinian context. So they're doing it somewhat anachronistically. And so the films that work in that subgenre for me are films like um, The Son of Man, which came out in 2007, which locates the story of Jesus within uh, Southern Africa during some sort of apartheid. It's a fictitious country, but it's, it's basically South Africa during apartheid. It's a fascinating film. But my favorite has to be uh, Jesus of Montreal, which came out in 1989. Uh, from uh, the French-Canadian director, Denis Arcane. It's, it's really a masterpiece. Uh, it's dated, there's no question. You, you know it's filmed and it's set in 1980s Quebec. And it's a critique, uh, in part at least, of the late 1980s uh, um, Quebec culture, a critique of the Roman Catholic Church, etc. But it really resonates with me. I think it's a fascinating, very creative retelling of the story of Jesus. And those are the films that I'm really most interested in. Uh, it's, it's not the ones like The Greatest Story Ever Told, which you could retitle The Longest Story Ever Told, uh, which uh, apparently is uh, supposed to have some sort of verisimilitude, and, and yet they filmed it in Utah, um, for example. Uh, or 
or King of Kings, um, the, the the second King of Kings from 1961 uh, with Jeffrey Hunter, who, by the way, played Captain Pike in, in Star Trek uh, in the pilot, the original pilot. Uh, that's just awfully boring and long and uh, just a terrible movie. Uh, but But I think the ones that I resonate the most with are the ones that are those transitional ones, the ones that are trying to tell the story of Jesus in an, an, a purposefully anachronistic, non-first century, non-Palestinian context. Th those, those are the ones that are most interesting to me. Yeah, what, what you refer to as the transitional gospel films or Jesus films are also some of my favorites. I, I um, When I teach on this, I, I talk about the, the two horizons of filmmaking and how what these films do is they make overt the, the second horizon, right? So the first horizon is the ancient world that they're ostensibly trying to do something with. Um, but the second horizon is, is the context of the storytelling, right? Where that's taking yeah. place. And every Jesus film has a second horizon, even the ones that are ostensibly trying to just give you first century Palestine. Um, and what I love about those transitional films is it's so overt on the second horizon. It's retelling the story specifically for the pressing needs of the zeitgeist and wherever yeah. that kind of yeah. wherever that may be with its sort of local varieties and local concerns and um i just really really enjoy that i, th I feel like the films that are um uh the worst jesus films are the ones that uh, are so painfully unaware of their second horizon so the passion of the mm. christ the passion of the christ is probably the most egregious yes. example in my opinion um just so unaware of that second horizon uh in particular as we've talked about in this series the the um kind of the the horror film genre of the mid 2000s uh post 9-11 where you have like hostile and saw that were that were you know the the, the biggest sort of horror films at the time and then here you have sort of this like um christian version of that in my opinion Whereas yeah i know i agree like I, I i don't think mel gibson could have made last temptation of christ without 9 11 mm. like i think that's i th i think that's a really important historical lens for which to view that film you have to recognize that it comes out just a few years after 9 11 i can't remember what year it was exactly 2005 maybe but um uh, but Roger Ebert said it's the most violent film ever made, and he's exactly right. And I think virtually all of the violence is gratuitous violence. It's the sort of violence, as you said, John, that you'd see in a horror film. And not not to not to put down the horror film genre. I think I think that that actually can be quite helpful uh, in the teaching of theology and religion as well. But that's another podcast. Um, but but I, I totally agree with you about a last or not last temptation, a Passion of the Christ, which is, in my opinion, a dreadful, dreadful film. Right. Ebert also said uh, that it it should be rated NC-17. Yes, only, that's right. The, the yeah. only reason why it's it, it wasn't was because it's a religious film. And that sort yeah. of cloaked it from that sort of scrutiny. Yeah, I, I find it interesting with the Passion of the Christ and and especially in that genre of horror and and the, the viscerality of the violence in that film. Um, I mean, so many actual horror films, films that build themselves as, as horror, uh, focus on the unseen, um, not, the, not the scene. Yeah. So Passion of the Christ tries to draw out that um, and make the, the un, the, what is normally unseen seen. So in comparison, I mean, to the cheesy 
uh, Sam Raimi Spider-Man um, film, which has uh, possibly one of the best horror scenes for a PG-rated film. Um, it's filmed in it, at, at the the dismemberment of people and things like this are all filmed by implication as to what what is going on, not by explication. Um, yeah. And I thought, I wonder. Um, so, thinking about this then for uh, teaching uh, and engagement in teaching, I wonder what um, what that tells us about how we how we engage uh, people in our classrooms. Uh, with uh, not just the Jesus narrative, but with the ancient world, do we need to be showing it to them explicitly, um, or sometimes do we? Uh, is it better to help them see through a lens darkly? Um, so, for example, I often use Sicario as the Denis Villeneuve film as an example of the complexity of social groups uh, in in the ancient world. So, I mean, no one really knows who's good, who's bad, who's on which side. Um, by the end of that film, No Brother, Where Art Thou is in the same category, inextricably complex films uh, for demonstrating social groups. Yeah, no, I, 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 I think you're right, Chris. I think often it's we, we, we should be defaulting to these all these these films that if we're going to use film, and I have no problem with using film. I think it's really helpful in teaching. Um, uh, whether it's teaching New Testament or religion or theology more generally, I think using film is terribly helpful. But um, I, I think I often would default to these these other story, these these parallel storylines or these stories that illustrate a point or a truth or a, a concept that uh, is easier to pick out in this kind of parallel alternative narrative in a film versus a film that's trying. Uh, to like, for example, back to Passion of the Christ, which you know Gibson wanted. Gibson was apparently trying to make a terribly realistic film. So you you know you've got Aramaic with subtitles, you've got Latin with subtitles, which is problematic historically, obviously. Um, but but the thing is, the thing of one of the things that I disliked about the film was how unrealistic it was in its portrayal. So particularly with the violence. The violence, which the film is known for, is there's so many scenes of gratuitous violence and it's gratuitous in part because it's unrealistic. So the flogging scene, for example, there's no human being could survive that. And so it almost undercuts Gibson's purpose for the film to illustrate the humanity of Jesus and Jesus as the suffering human being uh, on behalf of humanity. Uh, but, you know, when Jesus, as he's you know flogged for seven minutes or however long it is, it's in, it's excruciating to watch, but he stands up. You know that's just ridiculous. Or when he carries that cross, which is two massive railroad ties tied together, that's uh, just totally unrealistic. And we we as New Testament scholars know that. Uh, but I think it's those um, those attempts to be realistic, apparently. Kind of undercut the, the 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 point of the film, and for me, make make the film not worth watching. And it's a film that I'll have on my syllabus in the bibliography section of the kind of the Jesus in film catalog, but it's not one we screen in class. In in part because I think it's a highly problematic film, and also because of the violence is is um, disturbing, unnecessarily so. 
Speaking of uh, uh, speaking of the disturbing nature of the crucifixion, um, on a on a lighter note, the uh, the way that Life of Brian um, ends, of course, it, it, it pokes fun at the representation of crucifixions in uh, in in Jesus films. It seems to be kind of a send up of how like Zeffirelli's um, Jesus of Nazareth portrays the crucifixion yeah. uh, in 1977, uh, and just this idea of of it's kind of the, the kind of the way that the filmmakers portray it, uh, of course, Life of Brian uh, turns it on its head uh, with all of these people being crucified, not not Jesus, but a bunch of other people uh, singing um, Always Look on the Bright Side uh, of Life. Um, uh, do you have any thoughts beyond the passion of the Christ about the portrayal of uh, the crucifixion in, in Jesus films? Yeah, it, it's interesting how bloodless the portrayals can be. For example, in Greatest Story Ever Told, uh, where Max von Sydow is crucified, there's no, there's no, there's no blood, uh, there's no cries of pain. Right? It's very sanitized, and I, and so I think that's problematic, certainly. Um, and and you, you mentioned Zeffirelli's film, and of course. Life of Brian used many of the sets that were left over from Zeffirelli's film. So uh, it, it's, it, it, and they were filmed close together chronologically as well. So, so it's an interesting sort of uh, parallel or relationship between Monty Python and, and Zeffirelli's Jesus of Nazareth, which I remember watching as a kid, by the way, I'm dating myself, but I remember watching that because it came out as a miniseries, at least in the United States. I remember watching it intently on NBC. I'd never seen anything like that before in my life. And perhaps is one of the reasons why I'm a gospel scholar today. But you know, when you think, when you look at the gospels themselves, there's not a lot of portrayal of, at least explicitly, of the violence of crucifixion, right? It kind of glosses, the gospels themselves kind of gloss over that. Yes, you have a cry of dereliction, in Matthew and Mark. Yes, you have a flogging in Matthew, Mark, and John, but it's interesting when you get to Luke, it's really sanitized. It's really sanitized. So um, I'm not excusing the filmmakers that sanit sanitize a visual portrayal of, of crucifixion. It needs to be portrayed for the awfulness and the violence that it is, but it is interesting how gospel narratives seem to kind of gloss over that. And, and uh, maybe it's implied maybe that, that maybe the early readers of the Gospels could fill in the blanks and that's, and, and they, they would know to do that better than we can, because that's not part of our, thank God, not part of our cultural experience as 21st century Westerners. But it, it is interesting how there's, there's not a lot of explicit portrayals of violence in the passion narratives and the gospels themselves. So I, I do think though, I do think as you, you get into, as, as this genre kind of matures, if we, we start the genre in the 19, like 1960. So there's, there's a gap, right? You have, you have, um, uh, you know, King of King, the King of Kings from, uh, from the 1920s, uh, and, and then there's kind of a gap, and, and Jesus is not portrayed in cinema for uh, several decades. But if you start in the 1960s, you can see how you move away from the sanitized portrayals of the death of Jesus 
to more and more explicit portrayals. And um, for my money, it's violent. It is Scorsese, but Last Temptation of Christ is probably the most accurate, historically accurate portrayal of crucifixion that we have on screen um, uh, all the way around. And uh, and so when, when I teach the Gospel of Mark, for example, we deal with the passion narrative. I'll so show some clips from that scene. It's hard to watch, but but I want students to recognize what's being described, at least explicitly and perhaps implicitly as well, when Mark describes the crucifixion of Jesus in, in Mark chapter 15. That's really interesting uh, to think about the last temptation of Christ as being particularly or um, historical, at least in some ways, in its depictions. Uh, when I think about how crucifixion is handled in the last temptation of Christ, what what I always think of is the way that Jesus's carpentry was specifically yeah. for the purpose of creating crosses for Rome uh, yeah. prior prior to the start of his ministry, which I thought was an interesting kind of kind of twist. So I wonder if you have any thoughts about that. Oh, it's yeah, it's it's it it kind of uh, provides a sense of uh, you know or an inclusio of sorts, I guess, where we start with Jesus fashioning the crossbeams uh, in a, his carpentry shop. And then what immediately happens after that is there's a little, you know, there's a little, there's a riot, right, that's put down by the Roman soldiers. So you, you, this, the stage is set. Scorsese does a good job with this, where he sets the stage and reminds you that crucifixion is a Roman form of torture and execution, uh, and it was used within the context of um, political unrest in first century Palestine. Um, and, and and so we see that come to not so much to a conclusion, kind of a penultimate conclusion where we see Jesus on the cross. And then we go into the last 20 minutes of the film, which, which is the last temptation, which I think is the brilliant part of the film itself. Uh, I think uh, I, I really like Last Temptation of Christ. I think it's a highly flawed movie, uh, but it's Martin Scorsese and Peter Gabriel scores the soundtrack. And it's an incredible soundtrack. And for my money, it's the best one. And I think that's another ripoff in Gibson's uh, Passion of the Christ. I think the music, it's a musical ripoff of Peter Gabriel's um, score to Last Temptation of Christ, to be honest with you. So I'm interested, the confluence of these films together um, really highlights for me uh, that the, the patterns of tropes that get used and reused uh, throughout our films, uh, and we're, we're not particularly original. Um, Ecclesiastes says something about that, uh, that there's uh, nothing new under the sun. Um, but I'm wondering then, so apart from the explicit Jesus films, yeah. uh, thinking through teaching through non-Jesus films, but Jesus trope films, so... Um, yeah. One of my favourites is uh, the Green Mile, um, yep. where JC, you know, is explicit. It's not, he's not explicitly a Jesus character, but he's a messianic archetype. Um, so there's miracles that occur, blinds people with shining light, feels the pain and evil in, in of everyone in the world, and ends up dying uh, on in the, it, brutally in the electric chair. Sorry, spoilers. It's an old movie. Um, you know, so so you've got that, and then all throughout the the, the Marvel Cinematic Universe, almost every single film has some form of messianic arc. Uh, the Matrix, of course, is yeah. 
Delphi messianic figure. Although Neo there, I'd argue, is probably more of a Jewish messianic figure, mm-hmm. um, seeing the overthrow of the government, etc. Um, so thinking then about teaching not through Jesus' films per se, but Jesus' tropes, um, what, what are some of the good, good ways for engaging with those uh, in the classroom? Yeah, so I, I think that's a great question because certainly that if you talk about that as a genre or category of films, you're gonna, it's huge, right? As you mentioned, you mentioned Green Mile, the related film for me that comes to mind is Shawshank Redemption. Uh, uh, and it's this, is it this, I think it's Frank Darabont who directs both those, uh, the Green Mile and Shawshank Redemption. And of course, um, the, the uh, I can't remember the character's name, but in Shawshank Redemption, the the innocent man that's imprisoned in that prison in Maine, you know, comes through that sewage uh, and is kind of baptized. And there's that cruciform pose in that, you know, really important scene towards the end of the film. Um, and he, and he, he functions as a, a redeemer, a savior of sorts. Uh, and he certainly redeems himself and saves himself, but also provides salvation, if you will, to his friend, Red. Uh, it was played by Morgan Freeman in the film. It's a, one of my favorite movies, but I, but I think I, th- I think where film can be helpful, it can it can help um, illustrate. Uh, so let's take John one for example. You know, we read we teach John and we read John one, or at least the prologue of John one. Uh, students might have a hard time understanding what's going on there, but maybe a way to try to illustrate what might be going on there is to watch Superman the 1978 version of Superman, where, you know, you have uh, Call L, who becomes Superman, Clark Kent, who is sent to save Earth from itself by his father, Joel L. You know, there's, I think there's echoes of John 1 in Superman, at least the original version of Superman. I know there have been several reboots of it, and we see it, we saw a bit of that with uh, that that one that came out in the early 2000s with uh, Russell Crowe. Um, can't remember what, what title that went by, but but I you know I do like the original Superman, the 1978 one with Christopher Reeves. I, I think it's a really a fine film. We can and we can use that uh, as a way to perhaps illustrate what's going on in John One. And you see that kind of that that uh, Messiah figure, that Christ figure, show up in film after film after film. And I wonder sometimes if filmmakers actually recognize where they're getting that that character from. Uh, so uh, let's take Clint Eastwood, for example, um, who uh, I don't think's made a good movie in the last ten years, uh, um, at least the last ten years. And and I he and and as a younger man, as a younger and as a teenager, he was one of my favorite filmmakers and actors. Uh, I think less so now, but. You know, you take three examples of, you know, Dirty Harry uh, is an example of a film where I think you see Dirty Harry as a sort of messianic figure. You know, this unorthodox cop who single-handedly saved San Francisco from a serial killer uh, because the system is corrupt, it's ineffective, and it's soft on crime. And of course, we can critique the film. It should be critiqued. You could argue that it's fascist in its portrayal of crime and criminals and and the the system, if you will, came out in 1971. Or Pale Rider, which I really like, which came out in 1985, which is kind of a reboot of his film High Plains Drifter, 
where he kind of plays the same sort of character, but this character that comes in in A Pale Rider, he's known as the Preacher, that's his character's name, and he saves a town in the northwestern United States in the late 19th century from an evil uh, industrial mining company that's trying to take it over, and he shows up, the Pale Rider, the Preacher shows up as a teenage girl is praying Psalm 23. Uh, and so it's as if God provides uh, a shepherd to shepherd this town uh, to, to salvation. And so you, you wonder about this. Uh, and then the other film, uh, Clint Eastwood film that I should mention, which I think is the last good movie that he made, and that's Gran Torino. Uh, Gran Torino, which came out in 2008, um, where, you know, you have this racist uh, uh, Frank, uh, his Frank Kowalski, I think his name was in the film. And he was a, he used to work for the Ford uh, manufacturing cars. He's retired. He's suffering from cancer. His wife recently died. Uh, and he uh, befriends this, this, uh, this Asian um, indigenous, indigenous Asian uh, family in Detroit, the Himung, uh, which, which is an indigenous group in Central Asia. And, uh, he becomes a savior figure. Now, albeit a white savior figure, and that again, we could talk about in a different podcast, uh, but he very much functions as a Jesus sort of character, even to the point where he gives up his life, he sacrifices his life on behalf of the, 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 the boy that he befriends, this Himung boy uh, and their family. Uh, and uh, he gives up his life so they can survive. And so you have that, that, that trope of self-sacrifice, which you see through, all throughout movies, uh, which you could tie back to, of course, the story of Jesus. And even in the film, when he dies, he's shot dead. When the Clint Eastwood character is shot dead, he falls back in a cruciform pose. Uh, and it's pretty obvious uh, what, what Clint Eastwood is, is, is doing there. So, you know, you have all of these different films. And I think uh, are picking up on Christ figures, or maybe sometimes Moses figures, right? Figures that are like a deliverer of sorts. Uh, and, and, and I guess it's part of, um, you know, a larger cultural trend that's attempting to retell the story of Jesus in a new context. And of course, C.S. Lewis did this. He did this in Chronicles of Narnia, specifically the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Um, and even the, uh, this is something we see uh, done every 10 years in Oberammergau in Germany. And I had the privilege of seeing the Oberammergau Passion Play in 2010. And it, it was just an incredible experience to see this retelling of the story of Jesus. Now there, they're trying to retell it, I think, with more within a first century context, but but perhaps it just uh, illustrates the, the human imagination and the desire to retell this story, whether it's an explicit story of Jesus or a Jesus figure, or perhaps more subconsciously or unconsciously uh, retelling a story uh, where you can see elements of the story of Jesus you know, kind of pasted onto these characters like the Clint Eastwood characters or like you see in, even in Star Wars, even in the uh, episodes one, two, and three, which I think are the worst uh, trilogy of the nine episodes, uh, you know, you have Anakin Skywalker, who's 
virginally conceived who leaves his mother to be under the tutelage of Obi-Wan Kenobi. And you can't help but think of John the Baptist there and, and, and you know, the Virgin Mary and that sort of thing. Uh, and he, he has potential to be a messiah, but instead, uh, when he's tempted, uh, he goes over to the dark side. So, uh, so even in even in the the Star Wars universe, I think you see uh, elements of this Christ trope or this messy this messianic character at play all over the place. Mm-hmm. There's there's so much of it. I mean, it's ubiquitous. It makes me wonder if there's a kind of Joseph Campbell monomyth thing related to this, or if it's just kind of the influence of the Bible in Western culture. You yeah. know, we could we could point to Paul Atreides, and Chris uh, could have a lot to say about about Dune in that regard. Uh, but my favorite uh, Christ figure is Harry Potter uh, by far, um, and. In Harry Potter scholarship, there's a little bit of a distinction, and I wonder if this has any currency for you, but there's a little bit of a distinction between Christ figures and Christ-like figures. Is that is that a distinction that you think is valuable? Yeah, no, I think that's worth contemplating. I think that's probably a, an important nuance, uh, and a Christ, I think a Christ-like figure perhaps is a more nuanced description of what's going on there as opposed to a Christ figure or a Messiah-like figure. Um, now, in terms of Harry Potter, I must say I've only read the first book, and my kids dragged me to number six, and so that was just three hours of my life where I was totally confused about what was going on. So I can't really comment uh, intelligently about Harry Potter. Certainly well, not about Harry Potter scholarship. Uh, but that's but I know totally my fine. kids. I know my kids love Harry Potter uh, and uh, and have read the books a zillion times and have seen the movie the movies a zillion times and i probably need to uh, expose myself to that genre a bit more well i i would certainly say that that would be worthwhile um since you have read the first book in the first book um if you if you just imagine kind of the way the first story ends when uh, harry ron and hermione they go through the trap door guarded by basically cerberus his the, is a three-headed dog that Hagrid says he got from a Greek chappy. So we've got this stand-in for the guardian of Hades, right? The underworld. And they go through this trap door down deep into the dungeon and they get stuck in a plant called Devil's Snare. And then while they're down there, uh, they go through a, a little bit of an adventure and Harry defeats Voldemort, not really by doing anything. It's sort of accidental, but it doesn't matter. He he passes out then and then wakes up three days later in the hospital wing. Some real good sort of, you know, Christological tropes there. Absolutely. Doubly so. Um the there's a temptation narrative there as well the the mirror uh shows what the heart most firmly desires uh and so there is that uh there is actually a temptation at that point in which he defeats Voldemort it is like the last last temptation of Christ where um at that point of the crucifixion at the point of of greatest conflict there is a a temptation narrative there I find interesting though both the last temptation and with Harry Potter as a whole and many of these I guess, Jesus tropes, not necessarily Jesus figures, is that we find there's a, a sort of a, a strange harmonization or a, a cross-pollination of ideas one into another. So Planet of the Apes has Caesar, uh, where yeah. the, the new Planet of the Apes, that is, um, and the, the Caesar's arc is very much a messianic arc um, to the point of dying and being resurrected and 
um, being betrayed by his closest friend, etc. But it ends the the final of the Planet of the Apes ends with a Moses scene. Um, yeah, it ends with the, Caesar the whole movie. looking over the promised land. The whole movie yeah, the is whole, a Moses. The whole movie narrative. is an Exodus narrative, right? And yeah. And I didn't really know that going into it, but about halfway through, I'm like, oh, this is totally, you know, Cecil B. DeMille's The Ten Commandments uh, with apes. Uh, so, uh, yeah, it's it's a total uh, Exodus narrative more than it is, you know, the kind of the, the Christ figure narrative, although obviously there are parallels and overlaps, not just, not just in film, but also in the Gospels themselves. Jesus is this Moses-like figure, at least in the Gospel according to Matthew, of course. So um, yeah, it is, it is interesting how it shows up, and you wonder where where it comes from. You know, wh- wh- where does where does this are, are these filmmakers that paid a little bit of attention in Sunday school and uh, are are subconsciously making reference back to it? I I don't know, and maybe the other thing to keep in mind too is. Um, is this is the story of Jesus that we see in the Gospels original to the Gospels? In other words, surely there's other more ancient stories that have similar sorts of tropes and themes about saviors and deliverers and that sort of thing. Uh, and, and so I don't think we should assume that kind of the the um, the Christ figure story is a story that originates with the Gospels, if that makes sense, right? That it's it's it, it surely, surely it it's a trope that predates the Gospels, um, and, and the Gospels are picking up on that, at least in part. Mm-hmm. And I mean, of course, we can point to certain historical examples to kind of demonstrate that, but thinking about, you know, what does that then mean for us? I love the way C.S. Lewis deals with this, you know, mm-hmm. uh, especially thinking about Till We Have Faces and the way that he kind of incorporates these uh, er- earlier myths that that kind of resemble the, the Christian myth, the capital M, right? The, the true myth. Uh, I just think that's brilliant. Yeah. Within, within that category of, of true myth, then, um, I think one of the interesting things is where you have these, uh, not necessarily conflict of myth, but the repetition of myth. Um, so Star Wars itself um, features Luke. Uh, we'll just go for the canonical films, shall we? Um, yes. Features Luke as the 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 um, pr- primary. Uh, so Star Wars itself features Luke as the primary Jesus figure. Um, but in many ways, I, I actually think Han Solo becomes a messianic figure in the middle of that. Um, in so in the middle of the arc. Luke disappears off to Dagobah in um, Empire Strikes Back after uh, the Hoth base is destroyed. Uh, and Han Solo takes over that role of shepherding and guiding uh, the rebellion, ends up being betrayed by his closest friend, punished, for, you know, and then eventually resurrected in the start of Return. Mm-hmm. Um, there, and so you actually have these two messianic figures, uh, which actually play themselves out in the horrible, horrible uh, last three episodes um, <laughs> where Han becomes another messianic figure in the uh, on Starkiller base and is killed, spoilers, by his son um, uh, versus then um, both uh, Luke and, and, then, and then Ben Solo himself is a messianic figure who gives up his life for Ray. You know, you've got these 
conflict of what does it mean to be a messiah figure in this sense. Um, does that actually help us with the complexity of, of these things in our modern world? Or is this simply just an example of um, filmmakers and film students not really knowing what they're getting in their, themselves in for when they decide to <clears throat> invoke a messianic trope? Yeah, I, that's uh, that's an interesting question, Chris. I think I think maybe how I'd answer that would be when when students read well, when readers read through the Gospels and read the stories of Jesus that we see in the Gospels. These are stories that have resonance in the modern stories that are in popular culture that are retold in various sorts of media and various sorts of genres, whether it's film or whether it's um, in, in print or whatever. Um, so, so again, we come back to the question that we started with about what, what role can film have in teaching religion, specifically teaching uh, New Testament. And, and, I, and I think this is where I, I like to use film because I know that my students on the whole can understand what's going on in a film or in a film clip and um, and they can see these resonances they can see these parallels and they can see these similarities as a way for them to grasp the story better to be able to grasp the story of the gospels better um, and, and and so I, I I think that's how how I would respond to that question Chris just off the top of my head um, yeah and I think the the sheer complexity of the Gospels um, and, and, as you said, getting behind that first horizon uh, to what's actually happening, transcending the, or accessing the, the uh, what is actually happening in the Gospels and in the ancient world without the, the sheer foreignness of the ancient world. But I, I think also, conversely, the um, familiarity of what's happening in our society. I mean, we, we both teach it. We're, sorry, we all teach um, majority Christian students um, for whom the Gospels and and the and this idea of um, of Jesus Messiah has become a very normal thing, uh, and yet I wonder if sometimes the questions that then our students ask, and indeed the Guild at large then asks, are particularly informed by the history of yeah. the Guild, history of of the West, uh, and so. For, for at least for some of my students, when I've taught um, in the past in, in getting to, to the social complexities, the film genre helps to break down those barriers. It really, it both yeah. um, makes the foreign familiar and it makes the familiar foreign. Um, yeah, no, I agree. And I think, uh, uh, so yes, we're all in confessional institutions at the moment where the majority of our students are presumably Christian. I spent nine and a half years in a religious studies faculty prior to coming here, uh, and and I and I found uh, that using film to teach New Testament actually worked better in that sort of context, perhaps, than in a context where students come into the classroom with some sort of pre-knowledge or foreknowledge of the Gospels themselves, which you know is an entirely different challenge uh, for a teacher. And sometimes you got to break that down and rebuild it for them. But um, I, I found that with, when students come into that are at a secular university, and prior to coming here, I, I taught at a uh, religious studies 
as part of a provincially funded public university in Ontario. And uh, the students were coming in with nothing, which, you know, on the surface might seem, okay, that's a challenge. Um, and that, that how, do you, how do you teach students like that? Well, you're, you're starting with nothing and you're building up from nothing. And, and I think that's where films can be quite helpful in, in, in helping students to grasp the stories of Jesus that they see in the gospels. And so at the end of the semester, they'll have a better sense of these stories in part because they've been exposed to certain films and certain film clips along the way in my classroom um, that, that, that helps to, to illustrate what's going on perhaps in the stories that are told in the, in the canonical gospels. And I think then people go out and start seeing the stories everywhere, even in the most unlikely of places. Why not? So I'm wondering, uh, coming back to Jesus Films and 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 bringing this whole conversation and and indeed this whole series kind of to to a close here. Um, what are some things that you would like to see with future Jesus Films? Maybe it's um, you know new genres to be explored, or maybe it's uh, aspects of the Gospels that uh, we really haven't dug into, right? Because there's a lot of gaps in the narrative, and it would yeah. be love. It would be lovely to get some of these stories kind of told. Um, I'm thinking of a film. I don't necessarily think it's a great film, but I'm thinking of a film called um, The Last Days in the Desert or something like that. Yeah. Ewan, Ewan yeah. McGregor is Jesus yeah. and, and Satan, temptation narrative. And it's interesting It's interesting because it's it's just asking a very modest question. Uh, what was it like for Jesus to walk yeah. back to society from the desert? And and I'm just curious, are there, are there moments like that that you would love explored? Um, yeah, what, what are some things that come to mind? Yeah, no, I, I so uh, first of all, I would I would say I, I, I'd like to see more films that are based on these kind of alternative uh, storylines like um, Jesus in Montreal or or uh, Jesus Christ Superstar or Son of Man, those sorts of things. I, I'd like to see more films like that. And I, I think, John, you're right. It's the it's those picking up on those gaps that we see. Uh, and I do I do like that Ewan McGregor film that you made reference to because it does explore the temptation and that's actually one of the one of the few moments in the greatest story ever told which is interesting to me it's the temptation scene where Jesus finds this beggar in a cave in the in the Judean wilderness uh, and it's a really it's a very subtle temptation and I, and I really like that about that scene. Uh, but there are lots of other gaps. So, for example, the transfiguration, which we see in all three synoptic gospels, does not get portrayed basically at all in Jesus' films. And I've always wondered about that, why that's the case. And I'd like to see some exploration of that. So scenes like that. Um, and uh, and uh, so tr trying to fill in some of the gaps, but but having a film kind of dwell on that, on that particular Pericope even uh, for for the duration of a film, as opposed to trying to cram in an entire narrative of Jesus in the space of two or three hours. Again, I think at the end uh, it's doomed to fail uh, as a as a as a film narrative. I just don't think it works well. Uh, but the ones that and, and I think that's one of the reasons why Super, Jesus Christ Superstar for me still resonates because it it's just it's exploring the last week of the life of Jesus. Now it does so in some very flawed ways, I think, but, but it's, it's folk, you're, you're, you're focused on that last week. Um, and that, and I think that's one of the reasons why it's successful. It's also successful too, because the music is fantastic. Uh, and, 
it's one of the few films that's actually filmed on location, uh, if, if you will, right? It's, it's, it's uh, you know, it's from the 1970s. It's anachronistic in many ways and dated. And yet it's one of the fil few films that actually is filmed shot uh, in modern day Israel, Palestine. Um, whereas most of the others are shot elsewhere. So, so I, I think you're right. I think picking up on those elements that have been left out or underdeveloped in the stories of Jesus are worth filming. Well, thanks so much for this, Dr. D Darren Barker. This has been a lovely conversation and it's so wonderful to, to just kind of nerd out about films a bit this summer. Great, thanks, John. Thanks, Chris.